Good morning, Sun West. Did you know that the Bible talks about treasures in heaven? And I'm pretty sure it says that those who attend church on a long weekend will inherit extra treasure in heaven. And so, great for even online. It, it, uh, it applies for those online as well. Uh, so it's good to be with you on this long weekend, uh, as was mentioned, on the smoky long weekend. Uh, as uh, yeah, the smoke is kind of taking up the skies, and I've, I've had a number of people tell me, I've had a lot of fun over the last couple of weeks telling people that tell me this is apocalyptic weather. And I said, it's actually not apocalyptic weather. And they've uh, gone on to explain what apocalypse means. And so there's a whole bunch of learning opportunities right now as people use the term apocalyptic to refer to the weather outside. Uh, it's actually not because it's, it's the antithesis of apocalyptic weather because the smoke is veiling uh, the sun and everything that's behind the smoke. And so if the smoke were to clear, then it would be apocalyptic. Uh, and so as we look at the good news apocalypse, we are looking at what is reality behind what we see and what we assume in our world. And John is given uh, this apocalypse by Jesus, this vision of true reality. Uh, they, John and the other believers at the time believed that Jesus was Lord, that he was King of Kings, that he was resurrected, and that changed everything. And yet, as they lived their life uh, in those uh, decades that, uh, that followed the resurrection of Jesus, and they were looking around and they seeing the Roman Empire uh, take rule and do things that were the antithesis of the kingdom of God that Jesus was teaching and living, uh, they were wondering... What is really real? How should we live? If Jesus is king, then why is this happening? And so Jesus gives John this apocalypse to encourage the church, this unveiling, this pulling back the curtain to say, this is really what's behind what you're experiencing, what you're seeing. And the story that you're living in isn't the end of the story. And so John, a prisoner on the island of Patmos, he's there because he believed that Jesus was king and Rome demanded that he would uh, acknowledge that Caesar was king and that Caesar was Lord. He says, I can't do that. There's only one God. And so he finds himself on the island of Patmos writing to these churches with this vision, encouraging them with the vision that Jesus gave them uh, to hold uh, faithful to the way of Jesus, to following Jesus, to worshiping Jesus in a world that had no interest in worshiping him. And so we've been looking at this apocalypse for a number of weeks now. And we've been looking at the different symbols and John's writing in apocalyptic literature, which is a style of literature, which is, uh, uses lots of different symbols. And this book is littered with symbols throughout the whole thing. Uh, many of the symbols coming from the Old Testament and many of the symbols uh, also coming from the culture around them in a way that the people of God and that generation uh, would have understood. And we've taken time because it's more difficult for us to understand some of these symbols and what John is saying uh, as we work our way through it. Now, I remember when uh, I was 21 and I was newly married and my wife Lisa and I were trying to figure out which city to live in. I had grown up in Manitoba. I knew I didn't want to live there. Uh, so Winnipeg was off the table. Um, no offense to those uh, people listening from Manitoba or those who are from Manitoba, but I just knew, okay, I have to move west. I went to college in Saskatchewan, uh, just outside of Saskatoon, and so we thought maybe we would live in Saskatoon. We worked at camp in the summers uh, outside of Prince George, and we thought maybe we would live in Prince George. Uh, I know some of you who have been to Prince George are like, really? Uh, yeah, we had... Uh, a lot of friends that we had developed in Prince George, and the smell there actually goes away after a while, so it's, it's great. Um, and we also had family in Calgary, and so there was kind of three cities we were choosing between Saskatoon, Calgary, 
and Prince George and trying to figure out where should we live, where should we go to school. I had to finish my internship. Uh, and, uh, you know, obviously we ended up deciding to uh, come to uh, Calgary, and I did my internship at SunWest, and we've been here ever since. Uh, but that decision about which city ought, should we live in was uh, one that took up some space in our minds and our hearts, and we had to figure out, and everybody at some point has to make that decision. Where are we going to live? Where are we going to put our roots? Which city are we going to grow up in? Which city do we feel like we sh we're called to? Which city do we feel um, has the culture that we want to be a part of? And this is the question that John actually brings to us at the end of the book of Revelation. Uh, there's going to be some themes now that he introduces that are going to carry its way all the way to the end, but the the question that he's asking is, which city do you want to live in? He juxtaposes two cities. There's a Babylon and there's a new Jerusalem. And we can inhabit one of these two cities, but the question is, which city do you want to, do you want to inhabit? Which city do you want to live in? Which city's culture do you want to be a part of? Uh, and actually, more pointedly, he's saying, which city do you want to be? Because Babylon and New Jerusalem aren't just talked about as physical cities, but they're talked about in terms of... Uh, embodied the embodiment of what the people who are living in the cities, the cultural values that those people are living out. So which city do you want to be? And we see these, these two cities um, are kind of paralleled in the book. As we look in 17 verse 1, uh, speaking of Babylon, it says, One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute, who is Babylon, who sits by many waters. 21 verse 9, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, come, I will show you the bride, which is the new Jerusalem, um, the people of God in the new Jerusalem, the wife of the lamb. And so we see this juxtaposition, same language, same imagery, talking about Babylon, talking about the new Jerusalem. In 17.3 and 21.10, it says, then the angel carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. 21.10, and he carried me away in the spirit to the mountain great and high, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem. And so we see the wilderness, the harlot, this Babylonian city that's referred to. And then we also see uh, the holy city, this great mountain, uh, the bride, the people of God. All these things are juxtaposed and um, put against each other as we get to the last number of chapters here in the book of Revelation. And so which city do you want to live in? Babylon or the new Jerusalem? Which city do you want to be? Which city do you want to embody? The great city, which is referred to as Babylon, or the holy city, the harlot, or the bride? And so John is bringing these two cities now to our attention. And the New Jerusalem, I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, because uh, we're going to spend more time on it as we get to the end of the book. Uh, but as we understand the Babylonian picture that we're going to look at, we need to understand that he's putting this before us because he wants us to make a choice. Uh, the New Jerusalem, as we get to the end of the, the book, really describes uh, the way the world was created to work and the way we were created to worship, that Jesus is at the center of the New Jerusalem. Uh, we see this picture that, I, uh, that the Hebrew uh, language calls shalom, where people were living in right relationship with God, with each other, secure in their identity as sons and daughters of God and overseeing uh, creation in a, in a holy way. This is the picture of shalom that we see at the end of the book of Revelation, and it's described as the new Jerusalem. 
The new Jerusalem uh, is the world, what the world looks like when everything and everyone has chosen to worship and give their allegiance to Jesus. It's the picture of the way things ought to be. And so when people say things just don't seem like they should, things should be better, what they're describing, I believe, is this picture of the new Jerusalem, which we'll look at at the end of uh, Revelation. It's the reality that we get to live in when Jesus returns and makes all things right. So we'll defer that. Uh, to when we get there in a couple of weeks. But Babylon uh, is the city that, that uh, John brings to the forefront in chapter 17, 18, 19. And at the time Jesus gave revelation to John, Babylon was clearly uh, a symbol, a manifestation of the Roman Empire and Rome specifically as the capital city, but also the empire and the culture of Rome that was permeating out from Rome. And I say clearly it was Rome because in 17 verse 9, John identifies that this city uh, is one that is on seven mountains. And everyone reading Revelation understood that Rome was known for being built on seven mountains at the time. In fact, they had an annual festival called the Septimontaven, which means seven mountain, the festival of seven mountains. And so this was part of Rome's identity, and this Babylon that he's referring to was built on the seven mountains. But Babylon is not just a code word uh, for Rome. It's actually a word that is used throughout the Old Testament, and it starts long before the recorded history that we have. It starts before Revelation uh, was written. It starts way, way, way back in the beginning of the biblical story uh, in Genesis chapter 11, uh, in a story where we learn about the Tower of Babel. Everybody say Babel. In Genesis 11, we read the story. At one time, all the people of the world spoke the same language and used the same words. As the people migrated to the east, they found a plain in the land of Babylonia and settled there. And so just so we're aware, in the beginning of the biblical story in the creation of Canaan, uh, in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve decide to do things their own way and take God out of the center of their lives and try to be like God, uh, from that point on, they are moving east from the Garden of Eden. And we can see the Garden of Eden as this place of shalom, where God actually created things and everything was working in harmony the way it was meant to be. The thing that deviated from that plan was humanity, Adam and Eve, saying, we don't want to do things your way, God. We actually want to do things our own way. They listened to the voice of the serpent instead of the voice of God. And from that, in the story, we see that they're moving east. And so moving east represents in the Genesis story, this movement away from shalom, this movement away from from life the way it was intended to be, this movement away from putting God in the center of our lives and letting him be the source of our being uh, and our truth. And so the story is moving east through the first few chapters of Genesis, and we get to Genesis 11, and again, there's this reference that people are migrating east. People are moving away from God's will in their lives. And they found a plain in the land of Babylonia and settled there. They began saying to each other, let's make bricks and harden them with fire. In this region, bricks were used instead of stone and tar was used for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build a great city for ourselves with a tower that reaches into the sky. This will make us famous and keep us from being scattered all over the world. So they say, let us build a city for ourselves. Meaning, let's build a new society without God. Where our desires and our wants take center stage. We will be our own Lord. We will rebuild the world 
ourselves. It will be this great city, this great, they use the term great city, and Revelation uses the term great city symbolically and sarcastically to refer to Babylon, which refers to Rome. Let's build this great city for ourselves. And this great city is going to reach to the sky. And for the sky, in that time in, in biblical literature, refers to the heavenly as a place where the heavenly beings live, where God exists. And so there's a separation between humanity and God, and God was in the sky. And so this, this effort to build a city, this great city that reaches to the sky, is really symbolically a way of saying, let's become gods. Let's rule our own world. Let's create our own world. Let's move east from Eden. Let's move out of the way that God actually designed us to live and decide for ourselves how we ought to live. We'll build this great city. We will be gods. Let's put ourselves in the center. So they're going to build a city that reaches to the sky, and this will make us famous and keep us from being scattered all over the world. And so they want to create this city. And just a quick note that God is not against creativity. God created us to create. This is what it means to be made in the image of God. God creates and we create. It's part of what it means to be human and what separates us from the rest of creation, that we have the capacity to create. But the motive of why we, why we create and what we create are really, really important. And the motive behind this Babylon, this Babel that they're creating uh, is first and foremost fame. They want to be famous. They want to make a name for themselves. And this is a timely, and I think in our culture, where people want to be famous uh, for anything. I don't care what I'm famous for. I just want to be famous. I want to be, uh, I want to be known as an influencer. You, know, you ask some young people today what they want to do. Some of them want to just be influencers. They say, what does that mean? I still don't know what it means. Uh, but apparently you can make an income from it. Be famous. Be an influencer, have a following, have people know who I am, be broadly known, accepted, respected. How many of you in the room are between the ages of 22 and 37? Put up your hand, okay, there you go. So I, I, I read this, uh, these statistics that if you fall between the age of 22 and 37, uh, that 50% of people that uh, fall between the age of 22 and 37 think their life ought to be made into a movie. Some of you are laughing. Who is laughing? It's the other 50% that said, there's no way I'm going to watch that movie. That uh, sounds boring. People were asked, what would you do to become a household name to become famous? One in 12 said that they'd disown their own family in order to become a household name. One in nine would give up on their marriage if it meant that they could become a household name. One in six said that they would give up having kids or give up the dream of having kids in order to be famous and the percent actually went up depending on whose kids you were hanging around. Uh, but people would give up so much to be famous. And we see that fame here in, in, ba in the Babel story is part of the motive of why people wanted to build something apart from God. They wanted to make a name for themselves. They wanted to be God-like. They wanted to build to the heavens so that people would revere them, would honor them. It was their motive. We also see that there's a motive of fear. They didn't want to be scattered. I want to be famous, and I, I don't want to be scattered. This will keep us together. If we build the city together, it's going to keep us together. They wanted to be secure and safe. They wanted to be the center of the world, and they wanted uh, nothing to threaten that center. But the Lord came 
down to look at the city and the tower the people were building. Look, he said, the people are united and they all speak the same language. After this, nothing they set out to do will be impossible for them. And we'll come to the theme of unity uh, in the next couple of weeks as well. But just a note here that uh, unity is never the end goal of what God is doing. Uh, unity is actually a byproduct of what God does. And we'll, we'll see that in the end of the book of Revelation. We'll reflect on that in a minute in the New Jerusalem. Uh, but there's lots of reasons why people become united. And people can become united around the dragon and the beasts and evil, satanic things that are anti-God. But people can also become united around the lamb and the throne. And so, so unity in and of itself is not the goal. But unity is a byproduct of what happens when the people of God worship God. Unity can be a byproduct of what happens when people also rally behind a satanic cause that is anti-God. And so we see in the story of Babel that the people are united. They're coming together, which must have had this, this really good religious type feeling to it. This is great. We're all united. But they're united in something that is being built as the antithesis to shalom and the kingdom that God wants to bring to this world. So the people become united, speaking the same language. After this, nothing they set out will do, to do will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down and confuse the people with different languages, then they won't be able to understand each other. So in that way, the Lord scattered them all over the world, and they stopped building the city. That is why the city was called Babel, because that is where the Lord confused the people and actually, the definition of Babel is literally a scene of noisy confusion or the noise of a number of voices. So uh, it's called Babel. The Lord confused the people with different languages, and this way he scattered them all over the world. And without going too far down a rabbit trail that's not completely helpful for this morning, but it's fascinating as you read the biblical narrative, you get to the story of Pentecost after the, resu uh, the resurrection of Jesus and after he ascends to heaven, he sends the Holy Spirit to the church. And what we see in that moment of Pentecost is that all of the people began speaking different languages. But it wasn't for the purpose of confusion, it was for the purpose of unity. The people spoke different languages, they understood different languages, and it brought unity where every tribe, tongue, and nation were able to come and gain access and relationship with God and to worship God. So Pentecost is actually like this anti-Babel experience where people are speaking different languages, understand different languages, and it brings un unity because they're united under the lordship of Jesus. And Babel is the opposite. The new Jerusalem, we'll see at the end of uh, the book of Revelation, is made up of every tribe, tongue, and nation, united together under the worship of the one God. And so God brings unity, so he doesn't completely undo what happens at Babel. He doesn't undo diversity. He doesn't undo different cultures. He doesn't undo different languages. He actually brings unity, not uniformity, through the worship of the one true God. Powerful picture of the new Jerusalem. Anyways, back to Babylon. The term Babylon here, when we read in Revelation, finds its roots from the word Babel. That's where the word comes from. The story of Babel helps us understand what the heart of Babylon is all about when Revelation is talking about it. The literal Babylon was significant for the people of God because they were taken captive uh, in their history in 586 BC by King Nebuchadnezzar II when he leveled Jerusalem and he took the people of God captive. And so this is a, 
This is a significant marker, the actual city of Babylon, the nation of Babylon in their story. But in the Old Testament, a number of specific cities and nations are referred to as Babylon. Nineveh is referred to as Babylon. Tyre is Babylon. Babylon is Babylon. And so is Persia and Greece and Rome. Each one of these city empires bought into the way of Babel. We will do it our way. We will build our own city. We will be great. We will be made famous. We will be all powerful and we will be secure and safe. This is the way of Babel. And different cities and empires throughout history have taken on this Babylonness. Babel wasn't just built in Genesis chapter 11, it's been built throughout the biblical story and it's being built still today. And Isaiah, who is speaking against the actual Babylon, Isaiah 47, uh, says this. Now then, listen, you lover of pleasure, lounging in your security and saying to yourself, I am, there is none besides me. Let's read that yellow line together. I am, and there is none besides me. This is the sentence, the paradigm of Babylon. I am, which is pure blasphemy because I am was the name of God that God gave Moses on Mount Sinai. I am. And Babylon is saying, no, God is not, I am. And there is none besides me. I am suggest that Babylon is the distributor of reality and truth. It defines what truth actually is. When Babylon says there's none beside me, it's, it's telling us to question Babylon is actually to put yourself against this God-like power. And so when the Bible refers to Babylon, it's not referring to just the city Babylon, it's, referring to, it's not referring to a locality. Babylon is referring to a mentality. And that mentality can take over a city. It can take over a nation. It can take over a culture. And actually, the word culture comes from, the, I think it's a Latin word, cultus, uh, which has the connotation of worship, cult. That's where you get cult from. And so a culture is literally what happens in a society or a group of people uh, that reflects what the masses worship. And so when the, the masses choose to give their lives over to the way of the dragon, the way of the beast, if you've been with us the last few weeks, you know what I'm referring to. If you're not, go back and listen. But when the masses give themselves over to the way of the dragon and the way of the beasts, the culture becomes Babylonian. In fact, John, when he's writing chapter 17 in Revelation, he says, with her, the kings, so her referring to Babylon, referring to Rome, with her, the kings of the earth committed adultery and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. This is John's theme verse for Babylon. The rulers of the earth committed adultery with the harlot. So Babylon's referred to not just as a city, but as a harlot. The, habit, the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with her. And so people become intoxicated with the Babylonian way. And it was the same in John's day, and it's the same in our day. And so as we look at Babylon through history, there are several marks that translate through all of history. Several things that tell us what does a Babylon, Babylonian empire look like? Well, the first mark of Babylon is autonomy. And autonomy uh, is two words that come together, auto and nomis, which is auto is self, and nomis is law, self-law. 
autonomy. The self is the center. The self is the center. It leaves God out of the equation. It's an anti-God heart. And this is referred to in Revelation 18, 7, where she, referring to Babylon again, glorified herself and lived in luxury. So match now with torment and sorrow. She boasted in her heart, I am queen on my own throne. I am no helpless widow and I have no reason to, mo- to mourn. Babylon thinks of itself for itself, about itself, and everything evolves around itself. Babylon is like cultural narcissism. If you're familiar with narcissism, it's where yourself is the center. And a narcissist always thinks that they are the center and manipulate their situation to affirm that center. Narcissists identify anything that is in competition with their center, them being the center, and look for ways to eliminate those things that are in competition with it. The first mark of Babylon is that it's autonomous. It has put itself in the center. It's narcissistic. It thinks that anything that's threatening it is an enemy that needs to be dealt with. The second mark of Babylon is, this, is that it, uh, there is sens- sensuality that marks it. Free reign to the passions of the, bo- the, the body, the sexuality of commodities, selling goods by appealing to sex drive. Babylon takes what is sacred and makes it casual. This is true for the history of cities that are referred to as Babylons. If, it, if autonomy is, for, is the forming posture, that you are the center, then it would make sense that sensuality would flow out of that because if you are the center then you can, and, and you are king, then you can do whatever you want and whatever feels good, you should do it. So do whatever you want to do, be whoever you want to be. There is no law or authority or truth that should stop you. And so people that live in Babylon think that their desires, their longings are the most important thing. And so I should do what I want, be who I want, Babylon commodifies sensuality, takes the sacred, the sacred, and it makes it casual. And it uses sex to sell and to entertain. This is a mark of Babylon. The third mark of Babylon is the worship of mammon. And so mammon uh, is, is a god, is the god of money. Trusting in the power of money, the idolization of economic powers, the quest to amass more and more in order to feel more secure against the uncertainties of the future. Money, status, and power are the love languages of the city and the empire of Babylon. In Revelation 17, 4 to 5, it says, The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. And so when Babylon is referred to in the biblical text, she always appears uh, adorned with jewels and gold and expensive jewelry. She looks really bright and expensive on the outside. If you ask Babylon, how much do you want? The answer is always more. If you ask Babylon, how much more would it take for you to be satisfied? They would say, just a little bit more. Babylon, in spite of all of its richness, has a poverty mindset. And by poverty mindset, I mean that it always thinks that it's lacking. As rich as Babylon gets, it always thinks that it's lacking. It always has a sense that it could be more, that it could be wealthier, that it could be more secure. It never believes it has enough. It always is comparing itself to something or someone that has more and it never realizes that it's leaving less for others behind in its wake. Which leads us to the fourth mark of Babylon, which is economic, uh, which is that it's economically exploitive. In other words, it's unjust. 
But of course, how could it be any other way? If Babylon is the center, if they make its own law and it does what it wants, when it wants, and uh, for whatever it feels like, if the God is money, then it doesn't care what wake it leaves behind. Self as the center is always going to lead to the exploitation of others. Listen to this in Revelation 18, 13. Speaking of Babylon, it says, she bought great quantities of gold, silver, jewels, and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, and scarlet cloth, things made of fragrant, fine wood, ivory goods, and objects made of expensive wood and bronze, iron, and marble. She also bought cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, olive oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, wagons, and bodies. That is human slaves. We look at that list and we think, well, that all looks fine. All those things look fine. But the last three words or two words of that list are meant to shock us. Behind all of these items that it's consumed, that it's taken in because it's the center of its own world and it doesn't care for anybody else but itself, at the center of this consumerism, of this drive for more, is people, that this is being done at the expense of other people. And we don't think about this much in our world because we don't see the consequences of our material drive. And this is part of the reality of the globalization of the world in which we live in. We think slavery is in the past, but slavery is not a thing of the past. We just don't see it in front of our faces. Sweatshops are a normal part of life and a normal part of how we have what we have at the prices that we have it. Human trafficking, sexual exploitation is the norm, and we turn our eyes to it. And, and, and did we, do you know that the stampede, the Calgary stampede is one of the biggest human trafficking events in North America when it happens in Calgary? And we, we're not even aware of that. The drive for more, the drive to be the center, the drive to have what I want, when I want it, and whatever I want, always leaves a wake of people and slaves. Babylon is being driven by this autonomous consumer culture who believes that they don't have enough, that they need more, that they always have a lack, not realizing that they are creating conditions for other people to live in that are inhumane. And so as Babylon acquires more and more and more, it's natural that another mark of Babylon is that it becomes militaristic and it's violent we begin to trust in military because when you have stuff, you need to secure the stuff that you have. We don't want to deal with injustices and so we make other people and nations and cultures our enemies and when they become our enemies, they become something to fight against and when they're living in impoverished situations, we can think, ah, it's fine. Uh, choosing to resolve conflict with weapons and thinking that weapons bring security and freedom is a mark of Babylon. In 17.6, it says, I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. When John was writing, Rome had this, uh, had this campaign, we could call it, of Pax Romana, which is the peace of Rome. And people would buy into this idea that in order for the Roman Empire to function, 
uh, we would have to tolerate a certain level of violence. But it was for the good of the world. And it was for our own good. And so they would tolerate violence against peoples, violence against other nations. The way of Rome was to inspire fear through murder and terror and eventually assimilate other uh, nations and people to become part of the empire of Rome. Violence is a significant mark of Babylon. Babylon has an addiction to violence and to military solutions. A few sobering stats for us, at least 108, human, or 108 million humans were killed in different wars during the 20th century. Between 650,000 and 1 million were killed in the American Civil War. Between 500,000 and 2 million were killed in the Mexican Revolution. Between 500 and 1 million were killed in the Spanish Civil War. Between 16 million and 40 million were killed in World War I. Between 5 to 9 million were killed in the Russian Civil War. Between 8 to 12 million were killed in the Chinese Civil War. In World War II, there was between 56 and 85 million people killed. The United States of America has the largest army the world has ever known. And when I refer to the United States, I'm not just referring to them across the border. Uh, we all know that our well-being is tied together with uh, the American nation. According to one site, each year the U.S. spends more than $700 billion on its military, while China spends $261 billion, which is second over three times as much. The US spends more than twice as much as India, Russia, Saudi Arabia, France, Germany, the UK, Japan, and South Korea combined. This is a sign of Babylon. The dragon loves war because wars mean that people die. M military might is a Babylonian reality, not a new Jerusalem reality. And we could compare the way that the New Jerusalem conquers and that Jesus conquers and that Jesus shows up with a sword, yes, which uh, for some reasons Christians still find a way to militarize that image. But the sword is not one that he's wielding with his hand, it's coming out of his mouth, meaning that Jesus is speaking. That all Jesus needs to do to conquer is to speak. He's conquering from the sword of his mouth and he shows up in blood, but it's not the blood of others, it's the blood of the lamb that he himself has bled. This is the way the New Jerusalem is established. It's the anti-Babylon. And then finally, a sixth mark of Babylon is idolatry. And as we've mentioned throughout the series, that Babylon demands worship. It demands that you give it allegiance. If you don't worship the beast, it's not going to go well for you. When the empire demands that we define truth the way that it defines truth, that we live the way we, uh, that it, that it says it's okay to live. It's a mark that we're living in a time of Babylon, in the empire of Babylon. But the Babylonian empire that we see is not what truly is, and this is the point of the apocalypse. In light of all these things and these sobering realities that we've just talked about, the apocalypse is the good news that there's more than what we see. And so this part is not the part of the apocalypse. This is not the part that surprises John. Jesus isn't saying, look, here's the marks of Babylon. These are all things that John knew really, really well. And so the question is, well, what's the good news, Jesus? If, if, if Babylon, uh, Rome is in power and this is the world that we're living in, what's the good news? And in 18, 12, in 18 verse 2, Jesus tells the good news. 
fallen. Fallen is Babylon the great. It's falling. It's always falling. This must have seemed strange to John because when John heard this, Babylon was at the pinnacle of its power. But this is why four times in these texts in, in chapter 17 and 18, we read that Babylon will fall in one hour. They will be appointed to their kingdoms for one brief moment or one hour, literally, to reign with the beast. In one hour, your doom has come, 1810. In one hour, such great wealth has been brought to ruin. In one hour, she has been brought to ruin. All referring to the, the speed in which Babylon was going to go from being great to being nothing. And this did happen. Not in John's lifetime, but in 410 AD, Babylon fell. Rome fell within one week. In one hour, every empire on earth falls. There's a book written by British historian Neil Ferguson, and he talks about the speed in which empires fall. Civilizations of all shapes and sizes have a tendency to move from stability to instability really, really quickly. And he goes through in his book all the different empires, the, the Ming Dynasty, the Roman Empire, the Ottoman Empire, um, the Japan Empire, the British Empire, the Soviet Union, I won't go into the details of all of them, but he, he makes the distinction that as powerful as they were, they all fell at an event or in a moment or in a week. There's lots of things that led up to, into their event, but they went from being great to being nothing very, very, very quickly. And this is the prophetic apocalypse that Jesus gives John in saying, I know Babylon, Rome looks really, really great. But there's going to become a day, there's going to come a day, and it's going to happen really, really quickly in one hour where it's going to be nothing. And there's a city that's going to last forever. And so, John, which city do you want to live in? So what are we to do? What are we to do? If we wake up and we're living in Babylon, and I think when we look at that list, we could all say we are, what are we supposed to do? Well, Jesus gives the commandment to the church of what to do. In Revelation 18, 4, it says, come out of her, my people. And yes, that is an explicit statement. Babylon is the harlot that the people of the earth are having, adult, having adulterous relationship with her. And, and Jesus says to the church, come out of her. And go where? Babylon is everywhere. Are we supposed to leave? What are we supposed to do? Isn't this the opposite of what Jeremiah says to the people who are actually living in Babylon in the Old Testament? Jeremiah writes this. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those that carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper is what Jeremiah is saying and what Jesus is saying to John in Revelation opposites? No. They're the exact same thing. And this is what we see throughout the scriptures, that the call of the people of God is not to come out of her in the sense of move away or escape. It means 
to not be indoctrinated into the culture of Babylon. To come out of the city is actually for the benefit of the city, as we see in Jeremiah 29. To be salt and light is what Jesus refers to it in Matthew chapter 5. We are to live as citizens of the new Jerusalem today in Babylon. We're to live as citizens of the new Jerusalem today in Babylon. And to be clear, the new Jerusalem is a city, not that humans build build in Revelation. Humans cannot build it. The city is what comes when Jesus returns. And so we today, as followers of Jesus, worshipers of the Lamb, are actually citizens of a future city that is going to inhabit the earth. And we are to live as citizens of that city today in Babylon. And so if these are the marks of Babylon, what does it mean to come out of Babylon and to be an alien, a resident alien in the empire of Babylon? Well, if if Babylon is all about autonomy, the people of God are people that worship the living God and realize that they are not at the center of the world. If Babylon is about sensuality, the people of God recognize that there's things that are sacred and aren't to be made into commodities. The people of God realize that our desires and our longings are not the main thing by which we make decisions in our lives. If the the mark of Babylon is mammon, the people of God are paying attention to what are we coveting and envying and recognizing that that, that this is a never-ending journey to more that will never end if we worship mammon. Instead, the people of God practice thanksgiving and praise and contentment, practice generosity, And recognize that when we give ourselves and our resources away, it actually brings contentment. That's the irony of the kingdom of God. If Babylon is marked by economic exploitation, the people of God are paying attention to who is suffering by me living this way. Who made it? Who brought it? Who sourced it? Is there a better way? Is there a better company? Is there a better method in which we can spend our resources that is going to honor and be more just for other people in other places? How can we see people that are unseen unless we actually be intentional about finding out where our things are coming from? The people of God pay attention to those things. If Babylon is marked by violence and being militaristic, the people of God are people that refuse to actually take violence as a way to bringing peace. Because if you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. And the people of God follow the way of the lamb in which they're willing to sacrifice even their own well-being for the sake of others. If the mark of Babylon is idolatry, when Babylon says you must do this and this is what truth is, the people of God say, no. There's one king of kings, there's one lord of lords, and this is truth. Truth is a person. And so I give my life to Jesus. And if what Jesus says is in in conflict with what Babylon says, I'm not going to fight Babylon on Babylon's terms, but I am not going to give up my worship of Jesus. And come what may, I will will experience whatever I might experience, but I will not compromise in making Jesus the center of my life. The people of God recognize that they are living in Babylon and intentionally live in a third way. They're alien residents. They're citizens of a new Jerusalem, even though they're residents in Babylon. And all of this is why it's so hard to be a disciple and a follower of Jesus in our time, in our place, in our city, in our nation. We're constantly under pressure from 
the Babylonness of our culture. The message of Revelation is that things are not what they seem, and we shouldn't be fooled. Babylon is going to fall. Babylon is going to fall. And the job of the church is actually not to, to come alongside our North American culture and make sure that it never changes, it never falls. That would be a way of worshiping the dragon and the beast. Yes, we're supposed to be good citizens in Babylon, just like it talked about in Jeremiah, but we must never mistaken that our hope, our future, and our faith is not in a nation or a political party, but it transcends nations, that the new Jerusalem is made up of every tribe, tongue, and nation coming together under the lordship of Jesus, and our ultimate hope is in Jesus and the new Jerusalem that he's bringing. And as you no doubt realize, we're back to the fundamental question of the whole book of Revelation is who then will you worship? To whom will we give our allegiance? Who will determine our identity and our values and our lifestyle? That which is falling, falling, falling every single time, as great as it looks, it's always going to fall, or that which is eternal. The question that John brings us is, which city will you live in? Or better yet, which city will you be? Let's stand together as we respond and worship. Lord, we thank you for the apocalypse. Uh, we recognize that we, as your people, are even deceived as we live in Babylon. That we put our hope in things that don't deserve our hope. We put our faith in things that aren't worthy of our faith. Lord, as we think of the marks of Babylon, would you give us great discernment and wisdom to have ears to hear and eyes to see how these things that have worked against your kingdom since the very beginning in Genesis 11 till today are still happening. And may we not be fooled. Lord, may we give our lives to that which is eternal. May we live as citizens of your kingdom, even though we live physically in Babylon. May we live as citizens of the new Jerusalem in the empire of Babylon. May we be a foretaste of the future that you promised you will bring about. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. There's nothing better than God. There's nothing better than worshiping him and giving our allegiance to him. And we might think, really? There's a whole lot of great things in this world. But Revelation was given to us to warn us that it's all going to be gone in a moment, in one hour. So be careful where you place your hope. Be careful where you place your trust. Don't be deceived. As great as Babylon looks on the outside, she's going to let you down. And so which city will you live in? Babylon or the New Jerusalem, because there's only one of those cities that will endure. And so we choose to give our allegiance to Jesus. That he is Lord, that he is king, that he is the emperor of emperors. And like John, we say, I'm not willing to bow my knee to any other Lord but Jesus. Even if what we experience in the moment is suffering and trouble and disappointment, we have a hope and a faith that goes beyond the walls of Babylon. 
If you would uh, like to receive prayer for anything, we have prayer teams available at the end of our service. We'd be happy to pray for you. Uh, let me just bless you as you go on your way. Uh, Lord, thank you that you are with us. Thank you that um, you are on the throne. Lord, even as we here locally are heading into an election season, Lord, we pray for our leaders. We pray for our nation. Lord, we pray that how we live in our culture and society would be honoring to you. We pray that decisions would be made that align with kingdom principles. Lord, may we be a people that continue to pray for our leaders in our nation. But Lord, also remind us that our hope is not in which party gets elected. Our hope is not in Canadian or American uh, society. Our hope lies in the kingdom of God. Lord, give us eyes to see Babylon for what it is. May we live in light of the new Jerusalem today by the power of your spirit who lives in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great week. Uh, we'll see you next week. Enjoy the rest of your long weekend.